HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. What's going on, everybody? Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and this week we are catching up with a fellow that I caught up with at the ATA show. That was an interesting show, I have to say. It was the first time I was ever at the ATA show, and, you know... People who have been doing the ATA show for a long time, they've they've all got their opinions on how that show has changed and transformed over the few years. And there were some people that said it was, you know, it was a little bit more condensed than they remembered. For me, it was it was like overwhelming because it, you know, you're 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 pretty much seeing as much as you can imagine hunting industry wise and uh, seeing new products talking with new people but just seeing faces that you, you see on your your on youtube or your, your social media feed or on television you're just like oh yeah i've seen him before uh, yep i know who that is and just walking past it and i'm not i try not to be one of those people that has to you know fanboy and get in line but i just kind of looked at me like I know you. I know you. I know who you are. But uh, that was a cool experience. It was crazy travel. I had, I flew out the Wednesday that all that like airline stuff was happening. Like when we had the the airport shut down. It was the grid, or I don't know what it was, but like flights were getting delayed left and right. And it was the same day I was flying. I think that it got back up and running the morning that I left and but my flight was still delayed two hours so I flew in uh, I flew out at like 9 30 at night and got to Indianapolis until I got to the hotel it was like 12 30 at night and uh it was at the show all day it was a it was a busy fun time got to see a lot of people put some some uh, faces to the names and and people i've talked to and finally get to meet in person so that was a great experience then i flew out really really early the next uh, next morning friday morning was was back home by like 10 30 so it was like a very very short abrupt quick trip uh but it was enjoyable uh met some great people and uh the the guests that we have for this episode is one of them it's uh Jason Red from Timber Ninja Outdoors and he's uh he's a guy from he currently living in North Carolina and we were talking at the show about just hunting in general and how we found so many similarities in the terrain types and vegetation types um, that we hunt, you know, I, I've, I, I do some hunting in Northern Pennsylvania and some big wood settings. And, you know, he was talking about hunting hundred thousand acre chunks of, of, uh, I think national forest land and talk about rhododendron and laurel. I'm like, yeah, that sounds exactly what I'm used to in some senses. So we kind of connected on that. We're talking and, uh, you know, we have a great conversation uh, for for this episode. Kind of talk about a mature buck hunting mindset and 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 targeting a mature deer. Uh, we talk about a buck he's been after for a few years and uh, what he learned the exp- the hunting uh, hunting experiences he had chasing that deer this year and the the fine tuning he's going to do going into next year. 
and yeah, we talk about a, a host of other things hunting related in our in our BS session and we we end our conversation with his journey into traditional archery and uh, having mental strength through shooting your bow and transitioning to a a long bow or a recurve and just how it, it's just like another level in uh, bow hunting and he just he just talks about a lot of his mindset and his experiences and it's a great conversation jason's a cool dude and uh it was i was uh it was a pleasure to meet him and uh, have this conversation so i really really hope you guys enjoy this episode and let's get to it all right we're rolling jason red welcome to the show thanks man thanks for having me on pleasure it's pleasure Pleasure getting to meet you at ATA. Absolutely, it was. So we were kind of we were kind of talking about uh, kind of talking about your your mobile hunting game, and it sounds like not just your mobile hunting game, but it sounds like life in general and business has made uh, life pretty mobile. It sounds like you've been on the road pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I've been a traveling salesperson for eighteen years, so I've spent a lot of time in hotels and on the road for sure. So, so uh, are you somebody that embrace, cause there's people that like embrace that and traveling and being on the road kind of, or is that one of those things where it's just par for the course and you just put up with it? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's one of those things that you, um, you know, when I was younger, uh, I grew up really poor and never traveled. So I was really excited to get to see, cause I was a national sales manager for a company and I got traveled nationally through work and that was really fun getting to see new places. And then as I got older, I, you know, I started had money and was able to start traveling and doing things. So I really enjoy it. Uh, what I do get to a point where I get burnt out and I just want to be at home and be a hermit because I'm, I'm, I'm probably the most, uh, extroverted introvert you ever meet. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, no, it's fun, man. I, I really do enjoy, you know, adventure travel. I mean, I do a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, I've been a rock climber for a number of years and surf and, I was a professional cyclist and, uh, you know, and I hunt, I've been hunting since I was seven years old. So I, I, I kind of travel for all those things and I get really stoked on the adventure side of it and seeing new places and new country and meeting new people. So I, that, that really gets me amped up, but traveling for work, that can end up being pretty redundant and get, you know, uh, a little stagnant, I guess, in my, in my own, for my own stoke level. I, I like the adventure side of things, though, because I, I'm not, I'll be the first to admit it. I'm pretty, uh, and this isn't be, like I, I feel like I want to be this way, but I'm pretty narrow-minded in, in, in the fact that I just, like, my, my thing is hunting. I don't really do a lot outside of that, but at the same time, I've had a couple experiences here more recently that have kind of opened my mind a little bit like that's still pretty cool I think it, I just like it that it shifts it because we were talking you know before we started recording we were kind of talking about you know you can get burned down in a season and there's a lot more to life than than just hunting even though it is one of our favorite things and you know it's one of the that's why we why we're talking on a podcast in the first place but I mean there's there's a lot of other adventure yeah no for me I personally have to balance it out uh I've I've witnessed burnout from being a professional cyclist to being a climber to hunting and I found what works best for me is if I spend portions of the year focusing on the hobbies that I really love, it really allows me to balance out and uh, really, you know, fulfills me, I guess, is a better way of putting it. Yeah, and you need that for for your own mental sanity. I mean, um, 
there's uh, there's a time and place where you just need that that stuff to yourself, and I think having diversity and that's pretty cool. But man, we're uh, we're kind of going down a little bit of a rabbit hole, and I didn't do a really good job of introducing you. So we we kind of talked at ATA show, but I, I I'll let you you know kind of introduce yourself where you're uh, where you're from, what you're about. Yeah, so I'm originally from uh, the Mississippi Delta down and from Arkansas. Grew up there, but I moved to the mountains here in Western North Carolina in twenty or two thousand nine. Uh, so I've been up here for a good a good portion of time, and uh, you know I'm a avid outdoorsman, adventure seeker. Uh, you know, I, like we were talking earlier, I I own a business in the safety and industrial world. Uh, but then also I own Timber Ninja Outdoors, which is a mobile hunting company, which is, you know, how we met, but we've been in business since, uh, May of 2020 started pandemic. And we were the first people to, uh, introduce carbon fiber climbing sticks to the industry. And, you know, since then we've added more mobile hunting products, uh, you know, saddles, um, we got a carbon fiber tree stand, a platform. So essentially everything for the mobile hunter. And that comes from, you know, I've always hunted public land and I like to hunt deep, remote, rough country, big woods, mountains, uh, which I found after moving to from the Delta, which Delta is flat as it gets. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, but living up here and that's, that's really what gave me inspiration to start making the products that we make, you know, to be lighter, more efficient and just, you know, all, all the, all these different products that are made, you know, it's just different tools for the toolbox. And, you know, I don't consider myself a saddle hunter or tree stand hunter or whatever. I'm, I'm a hunter. I'm, you know, I'm a mobile hunter. So we try to make products that, that really work and for those people. And we try to make them the best we can and most efficient, most innovative. And so far, I think we're doing a decent job. Uh, and yeah, it's just, I get really stoked on designing and making gear i i really enjoyed getting my hands on stuff you know i was able to you know meet you at the show kind of kind of sit in the saddle um check your sticks i was really really impressed you know i've i've talked about this before and i don't i don't want to come i don't want to like take this out of anybody take this out of context but um i feel like the saddle hunting world i mean that, that that has just become such a a um prominent thing right now and i don't want to call it like it's a like it's a buzzword or something i think it's a fantastic tool like i don't think that like saddle hunting has now taken over and done um leaps and bounds better than everything other thing but i I like the way you said like i'm a i'm a hunter and i want to use the tools that fit and you know you you had uh, you had saddles you had tree stands and and that's what i really like so i'd be kind of curious um you know, as as a hunter leading into uh, you know starting your own business, Timber Ninja Outdoors, what um, what experiences did you have in the mobile hunting game? And you can talk, you know, stands, products, whatever you want to talk. Like, what had you been using? What got made you get to a point and say, you know, I need to adjust something because this is just not working. You know, what were some of your experiences pre um, making your own stuff, and then and then you know evolving to where we're at in twenty twenty three now. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I started hunting public land when I was, I, I mean, I started hunting when I was seven, and my family, we always hunted public land in Arkansas because we were, we were, you know, we were poor. We, we, we didn't have the money to join leases or anything, so we always hunted public. I mean, and so you had to do unique things. I mean, I've started, I 
geez, I, I've done everything. I mean, I've used climbers. I've used, um, I've used spikes that we've nailed into trees and put pieces, pieces of plywood in between the crotch of a tree to stand on when, you know, before safety harnesses were even a thing, you'd sit up there, you know, without anything on. And, and, um, I even like my grandfather had a buddy that owned a muffler shop and made me a, uh, made us, uh, some three piece, uh, ladder stands made out of muffler tubing that were really lightweight that I used to pack around on my back. And, and then when I moved out this way, uh, you know, I was using a hand climbers and using sticks and lock-ons. And I was, you know, in the mountains here in the big woods, you, you know, where I live, I've got access to about four or 500,000 acres of national forest. And a lot of the places, you know, you have to go in pretty remote and you got a lot of elevation gain and loss and so i was lugging all this heavy stuff around and like i said before i was a pro cyclist so i had went through the era of racing bicycles where it went from aluminum to carbon and carbon was lighter and you know as strong and stronger than aluminum from that aspect and and i just was wondering why people had never made climbing sticks and other products out of carbon so that's kind of where we started, you know, or it is where we started with the climbing sticks. And, you know, I, back in the day, I was carrying around, you know, your three-step lone wolves and stuff like that. And, you know, when we made the carbon fiber climbing stick, uh, the first one that I made for myself was a 20-inch climbing stick, you know, and it weighed a pound. And I never had intentions on starting a company because, I, like I said, I own another business and I was just too busy and, but all my friends that kept seeing it were like, oh, you should start a business with this. And then I ended up, two of my friends ended up becoming business partners. And then all of a sudden, you know, we have Timber Ninja Outdoors, which when we started it, you know, my idea was like, we're we're not going to be just a one product company. If we're going to start making products for the mobile hunting industry, we're going to do it all. And we're going to be a, the most innovative company that there is. And we, I think we've done a pretty good job there. Um, we suck at marketing. We've never really marketed, but, uh, we're changing that. And, uh, this year we're going to start marketing more and bringing on people to manage the marketing and other companies to help us with that. So yeah. And the, the main goal though, uh, you know, from my side of it is we're always going to innovate. Like we're just not going to make a me too product and we haven't done that yet. And we're going to do things different than other people did. And, and really, to be honest with you, a lot of my experiences as a rock climber and cyclist, backpacker, trail runner, there's a lot of products in that industry that are innovative and do translate. I mean, if you look at like technical clothing for the hunting industry, you know, companies like QU, First Light, Sika, a lot of their inspiration for what they did in the hunting clothing sector came from alpinists. You know, they essentially took technology that was used by climbers and alpinists and incorporated that into hunting products. And mm-hmm. essentially that's what, that's what we're doing at Timber Ninja is, uh, taking ideas from that, those industries and field experience from, you know, hunting a lot and this, and then incorporating that into the mobile hunting products. And so that's, that's always going to be the name of the game for us is innovation. 
Yeah, I think that's pretty slick, and it's it's so relatable to so many. You know, we were we uh, you know kind of connected talking about the big woods hunting side of things. You know, I've talked on my show before. You know, I, I'm kind of I kind of wear two different hats throughout the year. You know, I do some hunting in southeast Pennsylvania. It's kind of farmland, mixed ag, a little bit of a uh, little bit of mountains and stuff, and you know, hunt some private land. But you know, I, I've I've also grown so fond of just going to to northeastern Pennsylvania and big woods, and you know, having a couple hundred thousand acres in state forest land and some game lands and stuff and it's just an allure and uh you know seeing that grow and i i've realized that in order to be more successful i need to be able to maneuver in in some certain places and have better stand situations and i've done the same thing climbers and hang-ons and I, i do have a an older trophy line um saddle setup which is is again it's been a tool but it's it's been a learning curve it's something that i don't uh, don't practice enough with but I, I i just i really like the direction you guys are going and your focus on products and and uh just making things efficient i think that's my biggest thing because one of my biggest things when i go into um big woods is just the efficiency of once i choose a tree uh, getting up and getting set. You know, my efficiency right now is way down regardless of the system I use just because I don't use it enough uh, with the hunting I'm doing. But, uh, you know, there's uh, I got some goals this year. Uh, I really want to target uh, a couple specific locations throughout the state uh, trying to kill a bear with my bow. And I think in order to do that, you know, number one, it's going to come down to a ton of scouting. And I think it's going to also come down to uh, maybe making some equipment changes and, and making that happen. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be real exciting. So, kind of shifting on to that topic you know running gun what was what was it like for you when you moved from the flatland of mississippi delta and started hunting you know big woods mountainous country in north carolina and some of the other places you go because that's a that's a complete 180 yeah it is uh i mean the biggest thing for me was learning how the animals use the terrain because i mean at the end of the day it doesn't matter. Like I do a lot of hunting out west. I, I go to Alaska, so I've hunted game in a lot of different places. And you know, the the, the core concept that you have to understand that animals need essentially food, water, and shelter, right? And you uh, so you find those things, but then it's like, how do they navigate terrain to you know fulfill those areas of needs? And you know, it just varies uh, between the flatland and the and the you know the mountains and so it took me a while to understand how they use terrain and i and i will be quite frank i do feel like after i've learned how to hunt mountains and terrain that it's a little easier than flat flatland because you know terrain can dictate how an animal travels so it's easier to find pinch points and things from that perspective after you figure it out um, you know, the, the downside I find in the big woods in the mountains is our deer densities are way lower than flatland agricultural field places. Uh, so, you know, finding the animals is like one of the biggest things because, you know, where I live here in Western North Carolina, we have a very, very, very low deer density. I mean, essentially there's like 0.4 bucks killed per square mile and, so like animals tend to be pocketed and so you have to spend a lot of time scouting boots on the ground finding out where where those animals are pocketed and and then once you find that out you know and i'm more of a 
you know, at my age, I'm 42 and I've been hunting for a long time. I'm more focused and get most enthusiastic about hunting mature age class bucks. And, uh, which, you know, those suckers are, it's just, I could spend hours talking about the behavior patterns and difference in, you know, how, how they socialize versus other ones and things like that. But, you know, but I, once you do find them in the mountains, it sometimes is a little bit easier to really bring it down and actually get an opportunity or potentially kill one. Uh, but just for the most, for the most part, for me in the mountain country, scouting is the key component. Like you got to spend a lot of time learning the woods, finding where the animals are. And once you kind of figure that pattern out, I feel once you kind of see where mature bucks tend to live, you can kind of replicate that in a lot of different spots. And, but you know, with the low deer density, you know, there's spots that I'll find that look ideal and killer and you know, they should, should, um, hold a deer, but with that deer density being low, you know, I may, I may look at 10 different spots and only one of them actually has a deer living in it, you know? So takes a lot of time and boots on the ground. It, it does. I think you run into situations. I do all the time where I feel like there's just not enough hours throughout the week to make it happen the, the, the way I need to, to, to at the, the level I want to be hunting. It just doesn't always pan out that way for me. You know, this past weekend, you know, it was our final weekend of, uh, of our statewide late season. We were hunting with flintlocks and, you know, I had a group of guys together and we were, um, really not targeting anything specific. We we're just trying to, to have some fun and, and chase some deer in the big woods. And a lot of the places that have panned out really, really well for us in the past, uh, we really struggled to to get on deer. And for the sh- for the sheer fact that uh, food sources with the drought we had this year just w- were drastically different. Um, we saw a lot of differences there. So, you know, it, it finding the food I think is is definitely a huge thing. You, you talked about food, water, shelter, and I, I don't think that that changes anywhere in the country. It's just, there's, there's minor, uh, there's minor tidbits along the way to try to give you an advantage for shooting a mature buck. One thing that I, I think is a, a game changer is, is if you can really understand wind and, and thermals in hill country, because it's a, it's, you know, once you can figure that out, that, that opens up a whole new world to how you approach and hunt certain locations. And I'm sure you had, uh, you know, slight learning experience in, in that, you know, in the course of your hunting career. I mean, tell me a little bit about, uh, what what that was like for you coming from flatland yeah you know i mean the thing about the flatland in my opinion versus the hill country is you know thermals play a way bigger factor in the mountains than they do in the flat country you know wind is a lot more consistent in the flat country and thermals because you don't have as much elevation change doesn't really play as much of an issue i mean it can depending on like the speed of the wind and stuff like that. But wind's a big thing, uh, in the flat country, I feel, but uh, once you get into the mountainous terrain, cause in my opinion, there's a difference between hunting hills and hunting mountains because of the drastic difference in the topography. Uh, and you know, what I've noticed over the years, cause I'm, I'm a, I, I like to find here at home where I have more time to spend. I like to key in on specific animals and, what I've found is based on bedding, cause I am, you know, early and late season, I'm more of a bed hunter and during the rut, I'm more of a terrain hunter. And, uh, so what I've found by looking at beds is it seems to me that most 
mature bucks in the mountains are way more dependent on thermal and sight than they are wind because you know wind varies so much here based on terrain features uh that it's it's not as consistent for them as much as it is, you know, even for us. You're talking most of the bedding locations. Sorry to cut you off there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How they bed. Yeah, I find most of the beds being thermal-based in the mountains and site-based more than I do wind-based. Gotcha. So uh, uh, give me uh, give me a couple examples this season. You know, I'm not sure. Uh, we, we didn't talk too much about how your season went and stuff, but, I mean, I'd be curious in some of these places that you like to hunt bedding, early and late season uh talk about your your approach and maybe bring in some uh some examples this season of how you you focus in on those beds to kind of get uh get in position for uh, for a kill yeah well you know here at home like i said I, I tend to like find a specific deer and focus on them and a lot of times you know i i'm not able it takes me a couple years to really get them figured out mm-hmm. uh and like the deer i've had I've got three bucks I've been hunting here that are all, you know, good quality, mature bucks for this region. And, uh, man, it's just taken me a lot of time to figure them out. And I, one buck I was just all in on, uh, just a few changes I made this year. I was able to find his, his, where he was bedding in the early season in October. And I found some sign for him that, he was using this area a lot during this time of year and I could tell by the rubs he had in there that he'd had, there was a couple, you know, previous year rubs in there. So I knew that was his home range because he's probably, I don't know, I'm guessing he, that deer's five, maybe six. Uh, and man, I was all in on him and I'd hunted him for seven, hunt him for three years. And, I was able to actually, when I found this new spot where he was frequenting and I knew it was his home range in early season, I found him in October and I actually ended up seeing him twice this year. And for me, it, it seeing a mature age class animal like that in these mountains, seeing them is like the win for me and mm-hmm. shooting them is like icing on the cake. And I saw him twice uh late october late october and uh so i'm one day he was at 40 yards and i shoot a longbow for archer equipment and so he's out of my range and he actually walked under a tree that i was gonna set up on it in but i talked myself out of it because of the how the thermals were moving and based on the sign and the trails and i set up to be thermal thermal safe i guess and he came in above me and uh so he was out of range but he walked right up under the tree i was gonna set up in and uh and then i readjusted and saw him two days later at 10 o'clock in the morning and he went below the other stand i had set up so you know you know how it is there's a lot there's a little bit of luck involved with these animals but he was using that area so much he was at 60 yards that second time I saw him and uh, he actually, and it was, you know, I think that was October 23rd and he had two other bucks with him. And one of them was actually another mature buck I'd never seen. And I was surprised, you know, to see them still bachelor it up, but you know, our ruts a little bit later here. Uh, and, but that was the first time I'd witnessed 
three three good bucks uh, together that late. But I I had to leave to go to um, the Midwest. I was hunting the Midwest starting the uh, 25th. But I felt confident when I got back I was going to get an opportunity on him because how much he was in that area. But when I came back from that hunt, I was gone for, I don't know, 12, 13 days. I came back, and the foliage had dropped, and he had moved his bed. Because that's another thing that I've really been paying a lot of attention to here in the last couple of years is how much foliage changes their bedding in the big woods. As you said earlier, you kind of kind of keyed in on visual and thermal, in your opinion, is kind of leading that, is, is the driving force in where you're finding those bedding locations. So that would make sense based on that theory with a, with a foliage sense. And I, I can... I can I can semi relate to to what you're saying. So I I'm, I'm kind of curious like the hunts that you had played out in October with him. Um you know, this is a deer you've you've hunted a little bit and you've done some scouting. So I mean, uh you said you're the first time you saw him he was 40 yards and he went by a tree that um you know, would have put him in bow range you consider hunting. Was was there anything looking back on it now would do you think you would have done anything different approaching those areas that you'd scouted to him now or was did that make the most sense because uh, is it possible he would have bumped you or, or, or you know, you would have bumped him in that sense from that tree because it was a thermal advantage? Well, you know, if I how he ended up coming out that day and after the fact, I actually found his actual bed. Um, after I got back from that trip, I actually found his bed. And it made a lot of sense to me after that, that how he used it. Yeah, I, I would have been completely fine with my thermals, how he used it that day. And it made sense to me, like, how he was exiting his bed to go up and feed on acorns that day, that he would have went up the mountain like he did. And so my thermals wouldn't have definitely would have been i've been completely good on thermals and wind there uh but he had so many i mean this buck had so many rubs in there i could send you pictures he had probably 25 fresh rubs from stuff as big as my thigh i mean tall like everything that you look for for a mature buck uh so you know i I look at it you know is it disappointing yeah but i saw him i'm stoked but the thing is when you look back at the when you look at different rubs around that you know were made the years before, you know that's going to be his home range every year until he dies, probably, unless something completely changes in there. Uh, and so, like, for me, it's like, all right, well, I didn't kill him this year, but I have a way better game plan. And now I'm like, you know, I don't want to sound cocky, but I'm like 90% sure that I'll get a shot at him next year, just based on what I gathered for Intel this year. Because, you know, what I've found over, from hunting mature animals is like, you know, we all want to get it done the first year, but for me, it, it takes me a little bit of time to work it out, and I'm fine not filling a tag. You know, like I was all in. Is we get two buck tags here, and it was him or one of the other ones or nothing else. Like I let some other decent deer walk, but uh, I know like nobody hunts in that area, so he, unless he dies of old age or something else happens, like he'll be back in there next year. So. I'll readjust and and I, I feel like I have a way better game plan for for next year. You're playing a long game and you're building a story when you're talking about hunting mature whitetails, especially when you're talking about the environment and the settings. You know, it's it's a completely different animal when you're talking about um, 
lower pressure areas, higher deer densities, things like that. Um, you know, you're, 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 you hinted at a little bit lower pressure, but you're talking lower density and a much, much tougher, um, a much tougher basin. And I think it's so easy. Like I think a lot of the people that listen to this show and I'll be guilty of it myself. I think it's so easy to get such a, um, inflated, uh, mindset or uh, such an inflated expectation of hunting mature whitetails and i think you know having that attitude that if this is what your goal is and what you want to accomplish it may take you a few years to to put the pieces of this puzzle together but when you do finally get there and i've been fortunate enough i've been in in those situations where when it does finally come together gosh the reward is so much sweeter than you know, whacking the first, you know, thing that, that comes past you that, you know, kind of gets your heart pumping a little bit. Yeah. Same, man. Like, uh, I, I mean, I've, I've never had this luck that some people have and just like, you know, make it happen the first time or whatever. Like it's always every mature animal I've ever killed has always came from a lot of hard work. And then and, and there's so many times you want to quit, but you keep getting after it. And then, I mean, it's like this deer, uh, for instance, I've been hunting for, you know, like I said, like three years and this is a pretty big range that he's in and to get back to where he's at, it's, it's three miles one way with 1400 feet of elevation gain mm-hmm. and loft because you go o- up a mountain, down a ridge and off a mountain. So it's really intense and there's a, a lot of work and there's so many days you don't want to do it, but you keep doing it. And once you do capitalize on the deer you're after like you know i've killed you know multiple here that way i mean honestly you almost want to cry because it's just been so much work like Mm. this this year alone i I don't have an exact number and this isn't to like you know from an ego perspective act like i'm a badass but i probably put in 60 to 70 miles this year hunting that deer okay and i was thinking to myself i was like i wish i had a calorie counter to know how many calories I burned hunting this deer, um, so, you know, but at, when it all happens, man, it's just so sweet. And, you know, the thing that most people have to understand is like, you can't hunt a mature deer like you're hunting other deer because he's a completely different animal. Like he's, you know, and most of your older mature age class bucks are introverted type deer to begin with. So they do things a little different than your normal herd is doing from, from what I've seen anyway. I I don't disagree with that statement. If I wouldn't mind breaking that down a little bit from from your point of view. So I I mean I, you you listen to podcasts, you listen to um, you know different um, authorities when it comes to whitetail hunting. There's a lot of people that will make the comment that uh, you just made about mature bucks, and then there's I, I've also heard it from the other end of the spectrum. A lot of people will say that a mature buck is another part of the herd, and and there's not a lot of differences from them to the rest of the herd. And and I think depending on how you read into the context of that statement there there's truths to that but i mean um hunting mature uh, a ch- mature whitetail is is no easy feat and i'm kind of curious is there anything specific that bumps out in your mind behaviorally that that makes you really really just just absolutely wholeheartedly believe that statement like or or, or what about that just rings so true for you i guess well i mean i really didn't put this into play until like I've got a really good friend and somebody that I look up to as far as mountain hunting whitetails um, that I mean a lot of people know who he is a guy by the name of Nathan Killen mm-hmm. uh, he's killed 
a lot of mature age class animals in the Appalachian range. Um, a lot of them with uh, traditional equipment and he's probably one of the, you know, in my opinion, he's one of the most knowledgeable people in the whitetail sector. And he pointed out to me and it made sense when I talked to him, you know, when he told me this is like, he was, he references that a mature age class animal, you know, it's just like people. We all have different personalities. We have some people who are introverts and some people who are extroverts, right? Uh, and that translates over into the white, into all animals specifically, you know, like they're not all programmed the same. And so what that means is that an animal that typically is going to be introverted, not around the pack is going to be, you know, he's going to be solitary. So, He's going to do things a little different. He, you, you know, you may every once in a while see him with the group, but more times than not, he's not going to be. And so he has a tendency to live longer to reach the mature age class than a, a, an animal that's an introvert. Like you'll see bucks that at a younger age, if you, you know, use trail cameras, we spend a lot of time in the woods, you'll see them always frequenting certain scrapes and with, the, you know, communal scrapes and being around the herd a lot more and, you know, a lot of those typically get killed uh, quicker than one that's introverted. Like if you've, if you've, you, you know, you, I know I've witnessed this on trail cams. Like you'll have a cam in an area that's a saddle, for instance, that has a big scrape there and it has a lot of deer hitting it. And then every once in a while you'll see a deer in the background that's behind, you know, one deer triggered, triggered the camera, but you catch this deer behind them. And it's like a mature age class animal. And what that is, is like, he's not always coming in to check those scrapes, but he's checking them based on the winter thermals, you know, mm, he's downside. He's using, he's using a different trail and you'll find that, you know, the more you spend time, you know, in the woods and develop your woodsmanship skills is, and the more you hunt mature animals is they also don't use the same trails at all that a deer use. They'll have their, you'll see a little faint trail. Uh, and sometimes, you know, as you know, up in the mountains, Trails aren't that easy to identify, especially in low deer density areas, but little things will, will stick out. You'll see a rub or something that maybe they left and you'll see that that's the path they're using, but they're, they're staying in tune with what's going on, but they're not part of the pack. Right. And so mm. that allows them to get to, a, uh, get, get to an older age class to reach that maturity level. I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, they're, I'm, I am in just an awe of the white tail and just the, 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 the things that they, first of all, the way they make us crazy, the way they make me crazy, um, and just the little intricate details. And, you know, talk about the the mountains and you talk about faint trails and how they'll just slightly approach an area differently. When you talk about big, monotonous timber, it can get extremely daunting and extremely overwhelming. You can play these mental games in your setups and stuff like that. So I'm kind of curious, you know, you've been hunting this deer for a while. Um, you're really honing in and, and, and uh, fine-tuning the, the hunt to close the chapter on this deer. So, you know, right now in January, a lot of that's fresh in your mind. What, what happened in the season, what's going on. And you've got to have a lot of things fresh in your mind of what you'd like to do this off season in preparation for, for this deer. So are, are there things particular that you want to fine tune? Is there places you need, you want to figure out access better or, or other stand location opportunities? Like what's fresh in your mind to, you know, put some more, uh, you, know, you know, stack the cards in your favor again. Yeah, so I mean, what I'm doing this year, uh, in preparation for that deer, and actually, there's uh, another really, 
big deer I'm hunting in there too, which is kind of ironic to have two big deer in the same area. Uh, I mean, I say the same area, it's like, you know, multiple mile range, but, uh, I'm spending a lot more time on different sides of the mountain this year and some laurel thickets to really find his, um, secondary bedding areas and like later season bedding areas. Cause you know, what I've found in the mountains here, you know, you typically see your mature bucks, more bedding on the north the northeast facing slopes or east facing slopes uh than you do like south or west but as that foliage changes i've noticed you know once the big woods start dropping leaves this buck in particular he moves that bed and i have a feeling that he's bedding he's still in the area but he's bedding more on the west facing side where there's a lot more uh, rhododendron mm-hmm. and laurel thickets I think that's where he goes for more cover. So I'm going to spend a lot more time on that side this year. And I actually started, I went last weekend and covered some ground just looking and, um, actually, uh, one, one of the camera, I, I mean, I don't, I don't use a lot of cameras and I typically use them just for inventory purposes more than trying to like fine tune and pattern a deer because of what I found in the past is if you use too many cameras, you end up being dependent upon the, the camera rather than actually using your own instinct and woodsmanship and, you know, really your gut feeling. Uh, so, but I am, I'm going to be spending a, a lot of time covering that, that country. I'm just, I'm picking it apart. Uh, you know, like last weekend I went in and I spent, I don't know, six hours and I didn't even make it all the way to the back. I just covering the front area, just, looking for sign and you know i found bet i found a bed for what i feel is the other buck that i've been hunting so i'm, I'm gonna spend a lot of time there for the late season because i know he's using that bed in the late season but i'm really gonna fine tune more of you know that this other specific buck his early season habits which i i'm pretty confident that where i found him is where he's going to be um come october but I'm not sure if he's using that area in, you know, cause our season opens in September. I'm not sure if he's using that area in September. I think he is because it's at the head of a, a, a creek. And what I found in these mountains is a lot of these bucks, especially in early season, they tend to bed a lot around the heads of these creeks, especially on those north, north facing, east facing sides. Interesting. So, you know, a couple things that stand out to me and I can, I can echo like thinking about what it might look like in your area and then translating that to some of the places that I would hunt in, in larger chunks of mountain ground, you know, the, the laurel rhododendron, obviously that's uh, thick, high stem count cover that, you know, deer crave. Um, there's, there's probably also like a little bit of a, a thermal regulation aspect to it. I'm, I'm sure that transitions are happening, uh, based on conditions too, in those senses, at least that's something that I think I I've, I've noticed in some of the places that I hunt. Um, but another thing we didn't really talk about too much, and I'd be curious, do you, uh, do you get concerned in how a mass crop or, or resident food production 
impacts the way these deer move in the locations you're hunting. In, in other words, if you have a major, major bumper crop, acorn mass crop, is that something that's going to hinder you or help you and, and vice versa if it completely is a bust year on a mass crop? Do you see major shifts in the, in the, the ranges and the locations you're hunting and how these deer are behaving um, in, in these specific bed locations? Yeah, I mean, you know, in my opinion, that varies uh, based on the terrain, you know, where you're hunting. In the big woods where they don't have access to ag, yeah, the uh, mass crop definitely can impact it. You know, for me, like, I find that a year that's not the best mass crop, if you, especially if you know where a deer's kind of living, uh, you know, if it's not that good, it's kind of better because they don't have as much food sources, right? So they'll just key in on the trees that are dropping, but they also know what else they can live off of. And that's one thing that, you know, I want to talk about, about the, these uh, creek, creek heads, you know, where these creeks start is that it's not, ju- it's not just the water access to them. It's also all the other vegetation that grows in that area. Right. Go, yeah. uh, so, I mean, you're going to have a lot of ferns, you're going to have, uh, you know, a lot of saplings, greenbrier and stuff like that. They can live off of to sustain themselves because obviously they can't live solely off of a mass crop. You know, they would, they would die. So you got to have those other food sources. And I'm sure, you know, if you hunt in areas with a lot of roto, if you have a really bad mass crop year, like this year we had a really good year. Mm. We had, there's acorns, there's acorns everywhere. Uh, but in bad years, like I'll see them start, start to eat you know, laurel and rhododendron too, which is kind of like, that's like their last resource. But I mean, I've even seen where they, uh, you know, they forage on mushrooms, Mm -hmm. ferns. Uh, Another thing I see they like a lot too is, you know, uh, young saplings. Like they really like uh, red oak buds. You know, if you walk through and see those saplings, you'll see them where they cut those off a lot of times. Um, Yeah. Certainly. Um, I, I, you know, one of the things that I, I, I take away from that too, you know, the, the laurel rhododendron, I can echo that because a lot of time if I shoot a deer and gut it, that's one of the things I look is to see if they're eating. It's amazing up here. I've actually seen, it seems like regardless of the food sources, I see more doe that eat laurel than buck. And I don't know why that is. It seems like every, every gut pile that I've ever um, dissected uh, on a doe um, in, in my neck of the woods, she's always got some percentage of laurel. And not that bucks don't, but I mean, a lot of the time it's just it's just different. But that's one weird consistency that I've seen in, in some of the deer that we hunt. But, you know, you talked about uh, a couple other lower percentage food sources, um, you know, ferns. I Ferns were one of those things like, you know, I, I, I you know, took a you know degree in biology and was interested in wildlife and, and ecology and and uh, so so when you think about it from a forest health perspective and and plants and stuff like you look at ferns and you're like ah, this is a wasteland for wildlife this is something good and I'll never forget the first time that I saw them targeting ferns and at certain times you're like what in the heck is going on it was it was an aha moment based on uh, food sources that you know related to that area and then the time of the year so it was one of those things that now 
uh, you know, with the chop-offs that we have in Pennsylvania, the high timber um, timber production, you know, those cuts are stuff that I like to focus on. But sometimes you get those those cuts and, and you get a big fern patch, and I used to write that off, and now it's one of those things I keep it in the back of my mind to check at certain points of the year because it might produce something at a certain time depending on the rest of the available food sources. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and you- you'll go to other areas of the country that have ferns, but they have also a lot more other food sources. They won't even touch the ferns there, which is interesting. You know, and even like maple leaves, like deer love maple leaves. Mm -hmm. They will tear those things up. And like, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but if you see like a, a tree that's green, that's fallen because of like a storm damage, they will tear the leaves off of those trees in a heartbeat. Oh, I've been in the tree stand uh, already where you climb up in the dark, and as it's getting light, there was I'll, I'll never forget one time this one stand I was at, I saw, like, there was a, a major storm went through, like, two days before. And I'm sitting, and I see this brand-new fallen-down tree, and I'm looking in my binoculars, I'm like, please let that be a maple. Ah, it's a chestnut oak. No, it's not a maple. I was like, yeah. that would be, like, perfect. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, like, I, I, I own some property, and I did some – hinge cutting in an area and you know when you hinge cut a maple it always re-sprouts mm-hmm. and man that thing is like it's like you know there's a research they did i think the mississippi state university did that a maple has more nutrients than like trophy rock and, and if you notice i i had cameras in this area and the does you know that had fawns were where especially when they were nursing they would wear all that those shoots that were coming out out because you think about it how a tree produces it puts all its sugar back into the new sprouts in the tree in the spring mm-hmm. so when you cut that tree and those sprouts come out they're just nutrient dense mm-hmm. so they're getting everything they need from that i mean i it's just crazy to see them like how stripped off they will continue to be like any new growth they will strip it right back off yeah, I'm definitely not anti-food plot, anti-mineral supplement. Like I, those are all tools when you're doing private land stuff. I do those on private land pieces that I hunt. But uh, one thing I think a lot of people neglect is the fact that um, deer grow big and strong and healthy in a lot of places without any of that because it's in our natural brows. And I think managing natural brows yeah. is so important. So it's 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 just oftentimes you know you know the stuff we're talking about right now, a lot of time now we're getting into the subject of creating it and manipulating it versus just trying to go find it on something that's hundred thousand acres of monotonous mountain ground. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking to that natural browse and conservation side, you, you should really have my business partner, Tyler, come on and talk about that because that's what he does for a living. And you know, he, he says, and I believe him, you know, a lot of people want to plant food plots, but if you just go in and like disturb the ground and let the natural stuff come back, it has everything they need that you're getting out of a food plot. You don't have to buy it. Oh, he's wholeheartedly right. You know, that's kind of one of my interests. Like I went to, it was funny. Like I've, I've said this before, like I went to college for biology and ecology. And the, the reason for that was, you know, when I was 17 years old, I was an absolute knucklehead and I had no business having anybody ask me what I want to do for the rest of my life. But anyway, 
uh, the only thing I ever cared about was whitetails and, and hunting whitetails. I was like, well, I'll do something with wildlife. And uh, that kind of spurred that interest with me. And uh, it's still a this day. You know, right now I'm a, I'm a, a row crop agronomist. I work with a lot of field crops and crop production in our part of the state. But, uh, you know, that's just something that I, I, I love and I'm still a, a student of kind of on my own own entity and it's amazing seeing what sunlight and a little bit of soil disturbance can do one of the big problems we have though um which it's a constant thing is the amount of invasives we have i mean some of the places that we deal with if you create um openings in the in the canopy and and manipulate the ground you, we've got japanese stilt grass we've got you know you know ferns or you've got uh you know, some invasive shrubs that you got to maintain as well. But I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, there's so many plant communities that, that benefit, uh, the herd and, and all wildlife from that. So, so big, uh, big shout out there. Yeah. I mean, when you look at some of the, you know, I guess it would be considered an invasive, but it's a really good food source during early season here is uh stinging nettle. Mm. Deer yeah. will tear stinging nettle up when, uh, you know that's one and it's just it's really amazing to see what they eat like i you know like i hunt a lot in ohio and the mountains there and there's a ton of green briar mm-hmm. and those bucks you can cut a buck's belly open there and they're chock full of green briar yeah that's a that's definitely a good we don't we have green briar and where we're, we're some places we're hunting but it's not as predominant in some of those places i've heard others talk about in ohio you talked about stinging nettle man this year was a, a major drought year our, uh, our yeah. summer for us was, was was and i'm sure you kind of experienced something similar being on the eastern half of the, the the coast here but um it was amazing when i did some scouting runs in october the uh, the most sign that I was finding was was kind of creek bottoms, with, and there was a lot of stinging nettle. There was a lot of stinging nettle that were browsed, and that was that was a hot topic. And a lot of those creek bottoms held the best food just because that's where the moisture was. Yeah, yeah, and that's back to what I was saying about those uh, creek heads. Is you'll see a lot of stinging nettle there, and um, what's the other one? Um, hum- hummingbirds like it a lot. Uh, it's got a little yellow bloom. What's it mm, called? I'm drawing um, a blank too. Jewelweed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they'll wear jewelweed out too, and that grows a lot around creeks. So, do you like in the early season? Like, do you uh, kind of start to do a slow approach and kind of hunt your way from food back to bedding in those cases when you know those food sources are pro- predominant, or do you get pretty aggressive right off the back and kind of go for broke? <laughs> uh. I, I tend to be a pretty aggressive if I can be, but most of the time it seems, well, let me back up. I'm a lot more aggressive away from home than I am at home. Right. At, at home, I, I, I tend to be a little more passive and I'm kicking myself in the butt sometimes for not being aggressive because uh, I am an aggressive hunter. Like I, I hunt winds. They're definitely not the best for me and, and they benefit the deer more. Uh, but I try to set my stand where, I have a little bit of a window to where, because you think about it, if it if a wind's always benefiting you, it's not going to benefit him. So you more likely not going to see him to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to start putting the odds more in, in in his favor to be able to have that opportunity, and you have to be willing to go for broke and gamble. But I will say that's the number one tactic that I've found for me that works is if I I go aggressive and I hunt those off winds, that's when I've seen or killed. 90% of my deer 
uh, my mature deer is doing that. Uh, but you gotta be really slick with it. You know, you gotta know exactly where those thermals and wind are cutting to, and have that window to where you can just, you know, get that one split second where you can get, get an arrow launched or a gun. I mean, a gun changes it because you can back off, but you know, with a bow and especially like traditional equipment, you gotta get even tighter. So, um, yeah, hunting that type of stuff is, is the way to go. But yeah, so early season, I definitely try to get in on those beds as tight as I can because, you know, depending on where he's at, he's not, he doesn't have to travel too far, you know, like early season, he's not too, you know, he's got a lot of food around him. So, you know, you only, you know, obviously for me anyway, most of those opportunities come in the evenings. I I really see, see those deer in the mornings that time of year. So a lot of times it's that last, 15 to 30 minutes that you're going to see him. So you got to be tight. What do you think holds you back when you're at home from being uh, a little bit more aggressive in some senses? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't, uh, I think cause I'm so invested in that animal versus one out of state that I really don't have history with. I think that's the biggest thing. Do you, allow, do you so think in- your mind allows you to play, you know, tricks on you in that sense or, or overthink it, I guess. Yeah. I, I think I overthink it and think, you know, that I'm going to, spook him once and he's going to leave but really that's not the case either because i you know a big deer when he catches you his game worked right so he knows his game is solid so that doesn't mean he's going to leave the country and i don't think most of these deer no matter where you're at they don't run off 10 miles away like some people think they do they may move a ridge or 100, 200 yards, but they're not really leaving that core area because as, as an older deer, they became comfortable living there, and that's how he got old, right? So they're not really keen to leave that unless they're completely pushed out of there. And, you know, and how you bump them or how they catch it is different too, you know? Like, people don't understand, or they don't think about it, but a deer is bumped off his bed or all the time by coyotes or whatever it is, and they end up coming back to it. Like, they would go crazy if they, they were switching their bed all the time. Exactly. And one thing, too, in uh, in mountainous country, and when you've got, you know, benches and saddles and hollows and uh, drainages and all kinds of stuff like that, there there's so many instances where favorable bedding is one ridge over. So, you know, you talked about finding his bed and finding buck, you know, a, a buck's bed. Um, I, I know there's cases where mature deer will use the same bed bedding location with you know within a small window uh, fairly often, but you know getting bumped and getting bumped one ridge over there's uh, like you said the the game was won for him and he can probably replicate that in another sense until he moves back into that location where his sight and thermals are going to be at his advantage again and I think that that's probably one thing I miss often in, in my thing. You know, I've, I'm so cautious. You know, I, I grew up hunting a lot of private land and I've been a very, very conservative hunter. I'm kind of the opposite of you, but I've learned that I've missed opportunities not being aggressive. And I'd like to uh, kind of expand some of the places that I hunt and trying a, a more aggressive approach, just be, not, not just because I think it's what I have to do. I, it's something that I think would allow me to learn more about deer, deer hunting. Uh, I mean, chasing deer and bumping deer while i don't like doing it you learn stuff i mean sitting back and not seeing anything you don't learn a lot yeah i mean it's like anything else in life 
you don't continue to learn if you're not failing. And it's the same thing with hunting. Like every time you fail, or at least for me, I learned from where I failed. I mean, it was just like, and a lot of that comes from gut instinct. You know, when you've done something long enough, you have that gut feeling. And anytime I've won against my gut, it, it my gut proves, you know, it proves me wrong. You know, that I should have, I should have went with it. And this year was, that was an example. Like my gut was telling me I need to be set up in the tree, but I'll talk myself out of it based on, you know, trying to play too much into being safe and playing that thermal game. Like I said, not move my stand to be more thermal safe. And he went the way I, I knew he was going to go. And I've had that happen to me a couple of times. And, you know, you know, it's just a risk. You know what I mean? Like he's got to take it and live with it. And, and like I said, it's, you bump them. They're not leaving the country and people have to get that in their head. It's like, just cause you bump him day doesn't mean he's gone forever. You know, right. give him a week or so he'll come back in there. Cause the thing is, is like, I don't feel deer. They're not, they don't really have rational thinking. You know what I mean? Like they, they don't have strategies and they don't, I don't feel a deer that has been shot at, you know, he remembers that and never comes back to that area. I mean, cause I mean, I've seen it happen. I've shot at deer. I've even hit deer and turned around and killed them. You know, I may hit them and wound them and it's not immortal and end up killing them in the same area, you know, the next year. So like they, they, they don't have a memory bank to remember all that stuff. If they did, we would never be able to kill them because they, it's like if you lived in the ghetto as a person and your house was getting shot up every night, you wouldn't leave and come back to that house a year later. Right. Uh, you know, so if a deer had that type of rational thinking, they'd be almost impossible to kill. But we experience that people have hunted them a lot, you know, realize that because they've been able to bump deer, shoot deer and come back and kill them in the same place next year. Yeah. And it didn't happen to me, but one of my hunting partners, um, had it happen that he, he actually had it happen out of the same tree, the same year. I mean, you know, within the same week, um, you know, actually I, th- I think in the, in the case that I'm thinking of, he, I think he told me the story, we missed it one day and a few days later out of the same tree, missed it another day, ch- you know, chasing a doe. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a bad stimulus and under the wrong circumstances, you know, they're, I, I think they're wired to to be reactionary to certain stimulus, but you know, a lot of cases getting shot at, they might not know what happened. Um, they, they, no, it's every every situation calls for for something a little bit different. But yeah, they don't have that same rational thinking. I think we we do that all too often. We we put a human brain between the ears of a whitetail and then approach him that way. And and in that case, uh, when when folks say that. Uh, we're giving them more credit than we should. I, I think that's, that's a true statement under those parameters, but, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, if their brain was, were continuing to evolve the way humans do, they'd be driving cars and building buildings. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you better believe you know? what, I mean, what other things would they use those antlers for? Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, they would evolve. And I just don't think it, you know, ungulates are, evolve like you know we do is you know essentially primates i guess to a degree i think that the biggest thing is we can't fathom what uh your your mind process would be like when you've got the amount of nose you know receptors in your nose that you do because thinking about think about the stimulus that you get when you smell something 
you know, in your day to day, and then multiply that up, you know, I think it's like 200 some million receptors in the nose of a whitetail. Like, it, to me, that's that's the game changer. And with Hill Country, I've had these conversations with people like, when you don't give them enough credit, it's just that you're not giving the, the wind in their nose enough credit in so many cases. And I think that's why some people that I've hunted with or have, you know, conversed with about hunting in the big woods and talking about it being so tough and there's no deer, I think it's just so easy to bump a deer in the big woods because of their nose if you're not paying attention to certain things. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's their that's their number one source, right? I mean, their eyesight's it's good, but it's not that good. Their ears and their nose are, are the key things for them. And you got to play that into your, into your cards. And, you know, it's like, I think people think, you know, they overthink their scent control because like, you're not going to be able to beat a deer's nose. I'm sorry with scent control. I mean, there's things that it can definitely limit, you know, the exposure that you can potentially get busted, but you're not taking scent out of the game at all. And, you know, buying, scent lock it's, i'm sorry it's not going to help you uh uh you know you got it you got to beat the nose by the wind and thermals absolutely absolutely man we've been rolling here for a while and i'll be cognizant of your time but i wouldn't mind shifting gears for just a second and picking your brain you know we were talking at the show um and and you've semi-recently shifted to traditional archery you know, as the last couple of years i think you said you started that right uh, yeah, five years ago, I've been shooting uh, traditional equipment. I, I'm always fascinated by anybody who can who who can do that because number one, it's a it's a discipline to to learn that and be proficient with it. There's there's definitely a little bit more. Uh, you know, find your range is going to definitely be uh, compromised compared to most, you know, abilities with a, a compound and a crossbow. So I'm always impressed with anybody who takes that and sticks with it. I mean, I'd be curious what, what drew you to, uh, to going down that road? Um, I mean, to be honest with you, the simplicity of it, uh, especially, you know, me doing a lot of Western hunts where I, you know, big backcountry hunts where I'm, you know, multiple miles away from my truck. Uh, when I was carrying a compound, I was always like, if something happened to my boat, like there's no way I could fix it out here. And, you know, like cutting a string, there's no way you could restring a compound in the woods and, you know, your sights and stuff that can get knocked off. There's all these things going on that could damper your hunt when you're out there. And the stick bow, there's like nothing you know, it's just you and the bow. I mean, you'd have to re- pretty much break the bow, uh, to not be able to hunt. You know, you cut a string. I got to, I keep, you know, extra string in my pack and I can throw that on there and, and be ready to go. But also I, I realized that over the years of, you know, when I was shooting compound, I think when I switched to traditional bow, I'd probably killed, I think, you know, somewhere around 60 animals or so with the, uh, compound bow and uh, when i was thinking about like the average shot distance it was sub 20 anyway so like the yardage limitations didn't really matter that much to me uh the only thing uh and, and also just when i started shooting traditional equipment because i always you know saw people that hunted with them and thought it was really cool and i just thought the bows were beautiful because most of them are handcrafted by a bowyer not like mass produced like you see compounds i thought they looked cool and elegant and just when I started shooting it, it just felt so natural to me. And I just loved shooting it where I'd gotten bored with shooting my compound. Uh, you know, the only thing that was really 
challenging me from a target perspective was shooting, you know, out 70 yards or so, you know, at home. Whereas when I started shooting the traditional bow, you know, 20 yards was like 70 at that point, you know, in my, when I started and I just love shooting it. Like I shoot my bow year round. Um, I shoot almost every day, at least one arrow if I'm, if I'm at home and I just get really stoked about shooting it. And then also like I'll carry my bow with me a lot when I'm scouting and stump shoot. And that's really fun. But you know, yeah, when you switch to traditional equipment, you can't be about just killing animals anymore because no matter how much you shoot and how good you are, it it doesn't matter. You're going to miss. And you're also a lot of times they're going to come in, you know, out of range for a stick bow, whereas they've been easy compound range. Right. So like, you know, that deer at 40 this year, I could have zapped him with a compound all day long. Uh, but I needed him at 20. <laughs> and so it, it actually improves your, you, you have to become a better hunter to get into that range. So, you know, a, a good buddy of mine, you know, says, you know, you can't think about what trail he's going to take when you're hunting with traditional equipment. You got to think about where he's going to place his foot. If that makes sense. So you got to, it, it makes you fine tune your skills even more to bring that range in. And, but man, when you, when you let that traditional arrow go and it finds its place, it, it, it's just, it's such a satisfying feeling of accomplishment. You know, once it's happened, it's, it's primal too. It, it and it's hard to explain and this may not affect everybody the same way, but a lot of my buddies that are traditional bow hunters, kind of share the same beliefs is like carrying that that bow through the woods just feels so much different to you than carrying a compound i i believe you and like i said I, it's been always something that i've been so intrigued by and i'm always like impressed by anybody who can do that and get it done because it is just to me it's another level it's another level of complexity because number one uh, when you go you know i think about the chronological order a lot of deer hunters go through you know you want to go out and shoot your first deer and then maybe you want to shoot your first buck and you know maybe that was with the gun and you take a bow hunting i'll shoot my first deer with a bow and then you kind of go through that process and you start targeting different age class deer and uh, then you get to you know we're talking about mature bucks tonight and and, uh, you know, like, I feel like it's just another step above, like, okay, I'm going to do all those things. Now I'm going to go to a traditional bow. And I just, I respect anybody who can get it done. Cause I think it's, it, it is such an intriguing thing. I've, I've shot traditional bows. I've just never committed. I've never committed to it. And I think one of the biggest things is I, I've never invested into it, not just, uh, from a time sense, but from a financial sense, you know, I, I think one of the things that I've has turned me off is I, I never can feel like I get in a groove cause I'm not used to, to holding a lot of the bows that I've shot being 55, 60 pounds. And I feel like I struggle to find my anchor and, and find a consistent shot. And what I really need to do is probably invest in a lower poundage bow to practice and get my form down and uh, work up to something that we, you know, would be a more comfortable hunting weight and it's just not uh it's two avenues of investment just hasn't happened for me yeah i mean that's where some people go wrong with when they transition is like you can't go off of what you think you can pull um because you got to get your muscle memory down with a wider bow and then progress to a higher pound it's like i think i was telling you i started with 40 41 pound longbow and got my I got my form and shot 
sequence all dialed on that and I actually killed my first deer with the 41 pound but then I progressed up to higher poundage like you know I, I'm the most comfortable around 54 to 56 pounds is what I like uh, but it's taken me time and it's muscle memory and a, a traditional bow is not like you know it's like I haven't shot a compound well prior to ATA I hadn't shot a compound in five years and I picked up I shot one at ATA because my son is turning 14 and he's been shooting a recurve for a long time, but he just doesn't feel confident to hunt with it yet. So I, he's wanting to start, he wants to bow hunt this year and wants a compound. So I was shooting one of the new compounds and, and like, I, I feel confident if I had one dialed in, I could pick up a compound right now and shoot really well just because it is easier. I'm sorry. I mean, hunting is different, but target shooting, it's easy. I mean, you got draw stops, you got sights, you got all these things that make it so easy if, if you have a good shot sequence. Whereas, uh, traditional equipment, you really got to fine tune and keep that muscle memory and everything sharp for you. You know, I couldn't go a year without shooting a traditional bow and pick it up a week before season and feel confident to go hunting with it, you know? Um, right. That's a really cool I mean, aspect it, about it. And even having a, I mean, there's sometimes like a, a traditional equipment is extremely mental. Um, even I can tell like when I'm shooting, if I'm having a bad day and I've got a lot of stuff going through my head, I don't shoot as good as when I have a clear mind. And what I found over time is if I'm, if I'm having a bad day shooting, I just put it up because it, because a lot of it's because of my form and everything's just off sync. And if I keep trying to make it work, I'm going to start creating bad habits that are going to continue. So, you know, and I learned that from the guy at the bowyer here in Asheville that taught me how to shoot uh, traditional equipment. That was something he told me in the beginning. He's like, and, I, and it's something I still stick to. I rarely shoot more than one arrow at a time. You know, like I'll shoot one arrow and go get it. I don't, I don't usually shoot three, you know, three arrows or whatever, or six. I shoot one and go get it and come back and just, and he told me, he's like, when you start having bad shots, put it down and come back, pick it up later. And that's really been one of the most helpful things for me is just walking away from it and coming back when everything, when I have a fresh and clear mind and it seems like it just finds itself. But then also, you know, not to go on a complete rant here, but after do, you know, I've, I've owned, since I've been shooting traditional equipment, I've probably owned 20 bows. Hmm. It took me that many bows to figure out what I really like and what, what's good for me. And like my bow, I have now it's my, favorite bow i can go a week without shooting that thing and put it back in my hands and it's just like it it knows it just seems like it just goes where i look you know and it it, it, it's all based on a lot you know multiple factors but it just fits me really good fits in my hand good and i can pick that thing up and just shoot lights out most days well, and you touched on something, and this is a rabbit hole discussion too. But you, you you touched on like the the mental strength aspect of it, and like that goes in so many different avenues as far as the mental strength. I mean, I don't know how you coach and advance and and when it comes to the mental strength side of things. One of uh, another reason why I have not invested into something like that. So um, I, I'm a, a decent compound shooter i have a lot of confidence in in my shooting and, and my capabilities on target but i'd be the first to admit it i get 
buck fever. And I sometimes I get it pretty rough. I mean, I've got a, a shot process I go through when I'm when I'm going into kill mode. Um, you know, the buck I killed this year, I, uh, I I went through those processes. I had, you know, I felt good mentally and, uh, you know, went through my draw cycle, uh, approached the approached the target, put his pin on his chest and started to, to go through my shot sequence. And, uh, man, buck fever sets in and I, I start shaking like really, really crazy. Um, and it's one of those things that what makes me nervous about making that next jump is, you know, is that going to get amplified when I go to something that um, is, is just a, a step above? You know, is my buck fever going to get that much more amplified? And I want to be an ethical hunter, um, and I know it's going to take time and practice, but, I mean, if I would get to that level where I'm, I'm able to shoot con- consistently on target and put myself in the in shoes of, of, uh, of trying to kill a whitetail with it um, – how do I overcome that mentally? And I think there's a lot of hunters that are out there that have something similar that and can probably can relate to me. Uh, it's a tough hurdle. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't get these days. I don't get buck fever anymore until after the animal leaves or after I've shot. Uh, I used to get a lot more when I was younger, but I've also done other, uh, I have other hobbies that have put me in places of very, very discomfort, like rock climbing, for instance, like you get, you get above your last piece of gear and you start getting scared and you start thinking about how far you are past your piece of gear and you're scared of falling. And so you have to like start learning how to work through that. And a lot of that's breathing, breathing exercises is one thing, Uh, you know, like a rock climbing, when you start getting off task and focused up, focused on moving up and you start thinking about where you've been and not where you're going is when your head gets all messed up. So, you know, and even like I, I, I compete in jujitsu and stuff and like going into a tournament and fighting somebody, you know, you start get, you know, when you're early on, you get wigged out about the emotions of getting beat or, you know, potentially getting hurt. But, you know, you, you learn to breathe and think about, your skills that you've been developing and focus on your skills and your process, it takes your mind away from any doubt. And so, you know, the thing I do with when I hunt, uh, is if I see an animal coming and I know it's a deer I'm after, I don't look at his horns anymore. That's the number one thing. I start focusing on his body, but before I even do that, I'll turn my head away and think about something else. And I mean, this sounds very hippie, but I'll like do some, some breathing exercises to kind of calm myself down. And then when I come back to target, I'm only focused on for me, like I'm focused on the hair. I want to hit on that animal. Mm. I no no longer look at his horns anymore. And you know, you you, you probably heard numerous instances where people have went to shoot an animal with a bow and they, I mean, literally send the arrow through his horns Mm -hmm. because that's all they're focused on. Whereas I turn my focus and a lot of guys, you talk to a lot of guys that that are continuously successful. They do this is they start focusing on exactly where they want to hit. And then they start thinking about their shot sequence because, you know, that's the way you get away from target panic and all that stuff is just focus on your sequence. And, you know, there's things you can do. You can put something on your bow, a tag. It says, you know, remember, you know, remember your sequence. Yeah. You know, like, to kind of refocus your brain a little bit, you know what I mean? If that makes sense. Uh, but 
yeah, just dialing in on what your task is and what you got to do to get to that task will take your brain away from the whole big buck thing. Um, or at least it does for me. And I mean, I know a lot of other guys that does too, but then after they leave, that's when I fall apart. And I yeah. can't, you know, you can't hardly stand up, you know, <laughs> your legs go out and you're shaking and it, it's rough, but that's what it's all about. Good... That's what we do it for anyway. Oh yeah. If I ever lose that, like I, it's time for me to quit hunting. Right. Yeah, and I don't know that that happens with the bow, at least not for me. Uh, you know, you talk about shot sequence. You know, I've I've tried to fine-tune that over the years, and uh, it's gotten a lot better to the point where um, I'm really mentally confident all the way up through. And it, like I said, right now the, the the thing I'm trying to overcome in the fine-tuning is how do I overcome that, that execution side of things? You know, the, 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 the point leading up to it um, and, and getting to there, it's just that the, the, the last – section that last section when that that pin hits or I'm, I'm focused on the spot i'm aiming executing and not just collapsing um and i i think it's i think it's truly a mental thing it's one of those things that you know some of my hunting partners would probably tell me just suck it up and do it but it's uh I've just allowed it to um at the moment of truth you know everything right up until that point is is uh is good and then there it's where it's like okay zero back in kind of deal yeah, it's. I mean, and I think breath has a lot to do with it, man. It's like, you know, when you get excited, your your breathing becomes elevated, and you start breathing faster, more rapid, and so you have to just like calm yourself down, take a big deep breath and a, a slow exhale to kind of slow your heart rate down and everything, and and then you're able to focus and fine tune and shoot. And a good way of doing that is like, and at home is, you know do like some type of hit exercise to get your heart rate extremely elevated before while you're target shooting that'll help you work through those scenarios because in the best way again do that is get your heart rate up elevated when you go to pull off your shot slow your try to slow your breathing take those deep breaths focus and then execute the shot and i'm not saying it's going to take you a minute by any means like it happens quick but once you start developing that that trend and pattern at home it it's it's like muscle memory it starts to come into your whole hunting sequence too mm. i like that i like that and i think visualization drills are a good thing too mentally um you know visualizing it happen before it uh, before it happens in the first place but yeah man we've been rolling for a long time this has been great uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be cognizant of your time though um yeah thank you the uh so what uh, you know as we as we wrap this up, man? What's uh, what's got you excited here? Anything exciting coming up, or anything you want to leave us with before uh, before we let you go? Oh uh, man, uh, no, I just you know working on new products, getting some new products launched for the hunting business, and now I'm just focused on doing some spring summer activities to you know do some adventures there. You know, I got uh, like I was telling you before, I'm going to Ecuador and going fly fishing, uh, this spring. So I'm kind of focused on that right now, to be honest. And then turkey season, um, I'll be turkey hunting a bunch this year, like every year. And yeah, I'm just excited to do that and spend time with my son and just live a good life full of adventure. That's all I'm doing. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And you brought up the fly fishing in Ecuador. That sounds like a, like a major adventure. Like I, 
I, I get paranoid in the travel. I'm not gonna lie. Like just flying to Indiana for ATA, like it just I don't like it. It's and it's just I, I don't know. It's just that weird thing. So like going to Ecuador, like my wife and I, we went on our honeymoon to South Africa, and that was like the most paranoid. Oh, yeah. I'm not a paranoid person at all, but I was paranoid in that travel. Like it just was. So like you talk about Ecuador, like man, once you're there, that sounds fantastic, but getting there would kill me. Oh, I know, man. I, I get wigged out about planes because I'm not in control. I don't like somebody else. Like, you know, if things start going south in a plane, I'd much rather be up yeah. there pushing the sticks rather than relying upon somebody else. But, yeah, I get – I mean, I do a lot of extreme stuff over the years, and I, flying is something that always wigs me out too. Mm. Um, but, you know, you get over it. Right, right. Well, hey, that's exciting. Um, I'll be anxious to see uh, what 2023 has to offer you guys. Um, where can people follow along or, or check stuff out for you guys? Uh, man, just, you know, all social media platforms, Timber Ninja Outdoors, and our website's TimberNinjaOutdoors.com. And we also have a podcast as well called Timber Ninja Radio. So we, we you know, we're becoming we're more consistent with that. And, uh, yeah, that's the best place to find us. And anybody ever has any questions, just hit us up. You know, it doesn't have to be just about our products. You know, I answer more questions. I don't want to say more, but I answer a lot of questions and about mountain hunting and whitetail hunting and traditional bow hunting, you know, just as much as I probably do about products. So we're always happy to help people as much as we can. Good deal. That's what it's all about, man, helping people. And that's that's why we're here. So, uh, man, I appreciate your, appreciate your time and uh, look forward to staying in touch and seeing what you got, uh, what, what's, uh, what's in store for you the rest of the year. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having us.